0: morning, church. Today we're reading from Revelations chapter four and five. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Revelations
1: 4. Thanks, Angel. So we're going to try something a little bit different today from what we've done before. Uh, Previously, whenever we've met on Zoom, I have pre-recorded the sermons, but today we are going to do this live. So hopefully it works. Hopefully we don't have any technical difficulties. If we do... uh, We'll change it up for next time. Uh, If there is a next time, it would be great if there was no next time. Uh, But we're looking today at Revelation chapter four and chapter five. And it has been a crazy week, has it not? We've got the fifth wave here in Hong Kong. We've got shutdowns across the city. We've got hundreds of people shipped off to Penny's Bay. Buildings are going into isolation and forced to do mandatory testing. Just trying to navigate day-to-day life has been confusing. Like we were going back and forth all week, like, are we going to be allowed to meet as a church? If we are allowed, is it a good idea to meet? Uh, We didn't actually make a decision as elders until Friday afternoon about whether we would meet in person or online today. And I'm curious, as we've gone through this week, have any of you at any point during this week thought, man, I wish I could just sit in on one of Carrie Lamb's closed meetings and hear what's really going on in the city from the leader's perspective. Does anyone have that thought cross your mind? Like it'd just be so nice to sit in there and hear what's actually happening here. Like maybe if we could hear what's actually going on, maybe even have a chance to ask some questions, I'd have a better idea of how to respond to everything. I definitely had that thought cross my mind a few times. And today, we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation. And in today's passage, John has an experience like the one many of us wanted to have this week. Only he doesn't get to go into one of Carrie Lamb's meetings that's discussing plans for Hong Kong in the coming two weeks. He gets to go into God's throne room and hear plans being discussed that are gonna set in motion the entire trajectory of history throughout the universe. And then he writes down what he sees so that you and I can know it too. And so that you and I can be equipped through that knowledge to be overcomers, like we talked about last week, to be people who remain faithful to Jesus no matter what we face in life. So today we're going to look at this vision. And what we're going to see is that seeing God on the throne equips us to overcome. Seeing God on the throne equips us to overcome. And we'll have three points today. Uh, Watch the throne. 808s and in heartbreak, and Jesus is king. But before we jump in and look at the passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this is the day that you have made. As we meet on Zoom, which is probably not how any of us wanted to meet today, God, um, but that you still can work through technology and through computer screens. And you've given us this way of connecting today. And I pray that you would speak to us as we gather today, that your name would be honored and lifted high, that we would be drawn closer to you and that we would be drawn into worship of you. And in Jesus name, amen. So the first thing today is watch the throne. Starting in Revelation chapter four, John sees a series of visions that are revealed to him by an angel. And today we're gonna jump into that first vision, which happens in chapters four and five of the book of Revelation. And John, He's escorted in a vision to the throne room of God. And he sees some incredible stuff happening there. And it's important to note as we start, he's not looking at God's throne room at some point way off in the distant future. He's seeing God's throne room as it was in that moment. So we're going to look at all the things happening in God's throne room in the passage today. But remember, God being on the throne, Jesus joining him on that throne, That's not something that's going to happen some point out in the future. It's something that's already a reality existing and operating in the universe right now, today. Jesus is not going to be throned with God some point in the future. He's been sitting on that throne ever since his ascension almost 2,000 years ago. And all of world history since that point, since Jesus ascended back to heaven to be with God, all of world history has been unfolding according to what John sees in this vision and in the rest of the book of Revelation. And John, in today's chapters, he is taken to God's throne room. He gets a glimpse behind the curtain to see what's happening there. And he sees this not primarily for the purpose of understanding what God's throne room looks like, but so that he can see how the reality of what's happening in that throne room impacts all the rest of life impacts our world and our universe. He's seeing God's throne room so he can understand what everything else in existence looks like from that perspective. And he tells us about it so that we can see that perspective too. And we can understand how that perspective equips us to live as overcomers today. And as we see this scene, God's throne room, the first thing we need to notice is the throne itself. We need to watch the throne in this passage. God's throne is mentioned 17 times in these two chapters. For reference, if you look at the entire rest of the New Testament outside the book of Revelation, the God's throne is mentioned more time in these two chapters than in the entire rest of the New Testament combined outside of Revelation. These chapters are clearly trying to draw and center our focus on God's throne. And center is a really good word because as you read through these chapters, John paints this picture that's almost like a camera that starts super zoomed in and then zooms out. And always at the center of the image is God's throne. It starts out at the start of chapter four, zoomed right in on God's throne. And then it slowly pulls back and zooms out. And and we'll look at each of the steps that it takes. But first there's these 24 elders. And then a little further back, there's these four living creatures. And then a little further, there's countless angels. And then all of a sudden, we see the whole universe, all of creation, and every created being in all creation is gathered in these increasingly bigger concentric circles around God's throne. Now, why does that matter? How does that help us to live as overcomers today? Well, I want to invite you to think about the times in your life where you've failed to live as an overcomer, where you failed to remain faithful to Jesus. Maybe you faced temptation to disobey the commands of God and you gave into those temptations. Maybe you were tempted to deny Jesus and you gave into that temptation. Well, you know what all those times have in common? A small view of God. In those moments, when we deny Jesus, when we disobey him, we believe the people around us And their threats or their approval are bigger than God and matter more than him. Our thinking and our actions in those moments reveal that that in those moments, the people around us are actually on the throne in our hearts, not God. Or maybe there weren't even other people around leading you into temptation in those moments. Maybe you're just home alone and you felt drawn to the computer so you could get a couple minutes of pleasure from porn. Maybe you were by yourself. You just wanted to use drugs or alcohol as a means of escape and avoiding reality for a little bit. But again, what's happening to you in those moments? You're on the throne. Your version of reality and your definition of right and wrong in that moment is ultimate rather than God's. And that's why this vision starts with such a big vision of God. God is on the throne. All creation is gathered around that throne, singing his praises. And that's super important because if we are going to live as overcomers, we need to live in a way that has a big picture of God on the throne. We need to understand who he really is. If we're going to live in the way that he calls us to this vision of God on the throne needs to be central in our lives, just like it's central in this passage. And so how do we get that big picture of God on the throne? Well, to answer that, let's dig a little deeper into what's happening here and look at 808s and heartbreak. Now, you might be wondering, what's an 808? That's a great question. In the 1980s, the music company Roland, they released this drum machine. It had different samples of of drum sounds. And the bass drum samples on this drum machine became known in the music industry as an 808 they became super popular in 80s and 90s music because the bass on this bass drum sample was really deep. So deep that if you played it in clubs, it made the walls shake and everyone loves making the walls shake. And so most of the big names in music from that time and more recently have used these 808 bass drum samples in their music at some point or other, including big names that you would recognize like Beyonce, Whitney Houston, New Kids on the Block, Kanye West, and tons of other ones. And like I said, the people in the music industry, they loved the 808 because it was deep enough to make club walls shake. It was loud, it was impactful. And as we look at this scene from the throne room, what we find is a loud noise all around the throne that makes a great impact just like that 808 machine. And at every step of this vision in Revelation 4 and 5, as the camera zooms out and we're introduced to all these new groups, every step of the way, we see this loud, impactful, earth-shaking, heaven and earth-shaking worship. Worship that shakes not only club walls, but that fills all of heaven and earth. And the picture that's being painted for us in this scene is that when anything or anyone is in God's presence and has a clear view of who God is, they cannot help but respond in worship and praise. Seeing God on the throne leads to worship. I'm going to say that again because it's so important. Seeing God on the throne leads to worship. If we are going to live as overcomers, the way that that God wants us to, the way that the book of Revelation is, Designed to help us do, we need to have proper worship central in our lives. And when I say worship, I'm not just talking about singing songs in church. I know it's common in churches to refer to the band as the worship team and the music time as the worship time. And yeah, worship does include singing songs in church, but it's also so much more than that. Worship means living in such a way that through our lives, we show something is valuable or worthy. It means living in a way that shows complete dependence on something, complete submission to something. So whatever it is that you think, I can't live without this, I will do whatever it takes to get it. That's what you worship. So it's possible to worship Money. If you worship money, you're probably going to spend a ton of time at the office. You may actually even neglect friends and family and God and physical health because you want to be working so hard and making a ton of money because money is your top priority. Or it's possible to worship pleasure. If you worship pleasure, that could look like, it it can look like a lot of things, but it could look like racking up tons of credit card debt from buying things you think will make you happy. It could look like an addiction to something like drugs or pornography that you think gives you that feeling of satisfaction and pleasure, even if it's just for a moment. Worship is what we do to get more of something when we believe our identity rests in us having that thing or being close to that thing. And so proper worship, biblical worship, is a, not just singing songs in church, it's a whole way of living that recognizes God's worth over the worth of everything else. It's a way of living that shows that God is our greatest treasure, our top priority, the one thing we truly need in life. And we're never going to live like God is our greatest treasure until we learn to see God properly. And John shows us this scene of God on the throne so we can recognize his true greatness so that we can see his true beauty and power. And as we see that, we can be transformed into true worshipers, into overcomers. And like I said, the camera starts out zoomed right in on God's throne and then it zooms out. And the first group we're introduced to right around the throne is called the 24 elders. Now these 24 elders, they're most likely angelic beings that stand in God's presence on behalf of his people. We mentioned last week, numbers in Revelation, they're really significant, they're often symbolic. Well, I'm going to give you a hint, the number 12 in the book of Revelation and its multiples, things like 24, 144, 144, 144,000, whenever they appear, they're meant to point us to the people of God. So 12 is the number of tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. 12 is the number of apostles of Jesus in the New Testament. You take 12 plus 12 and you get 24, the number of elders that are here around the throne. So when we see 24 elders around the throne, we're meant to see them as standing there on behalf of all the people of God throughout history, Old Testament, New Testament, all represented there together by these angelic beings who stand in God's presence, who have great power and authority of their own because they have crowns, they have thrones, they're powerful, but they're there in God's presence to represent you and me. Does that fill you with hope and confidence, knowing that you are represented by such powerful, strong beings in God's presence? So that's the first group we're introduced to. And then the camera zooms out a little more and we're shown these four living creatures. And guess what? Four, another important number in the book of Revelation. It refers to the whole world, like four points on a compass. And each of these four living creatures, again, they're angelic beings, And each of them represents a creature that we know in our world. Lions, the first one, lions are the most majestic creatures. In the ancient world, if you were gonna do farming work, the ox would have been the strongest creature for helping you with your work. Man, the third living creature, is the wisest and smartest of beings. And then out of all creation, birds are the fastest of creatures and eagles, like this fourth living creature, are the most majestic of birds. So what we see here with these four living creatures is that all the greatest and best of everything that God has made is represented in these beings that gather around to worship him. And despite all the majesty and power and how amazing these beings around God's throne are, the primary thing that they do all the time is to worship God. Look at chapter four, verse eight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings that are full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, something really important to notice here is that if if you know your Old Testament, this scene is pointing us back to several really famous Old Testament scenes. In this scene, John is referencing Daniel 7, The first couple chapters of Ezekiel, Isaiah chapter six, the book of Revelation, if you don't know this, it is soaked in the Old Testament. You're never going to understand the book of Revelation properly if you don't know your Old Testament. And if you come across something in the book of Revelation that you're like, this is different, this is confusing, this this is new, it's probably not. It's probably actually a picture that John took straight out of the Old Testament, So I'm gonna try and point out some of these major points that he does this in the coming weeks. But like Revelation references the Old Testament more than the entire rest of the New Testament combined does. John is someone who spent a ton of time reading his Bible, meditating on what it said, having his understanding of the world thoroughly shaped by what the Old Testament says. And so he sees this vision of God on the throne, and and these angelic beings gathered around it. And when he tries to sit down and describe it to us, he can't help but describe it in the language of the Bible. Which again, having that level of knowledge and formation in God's word, it goes such a long way to helping us live as overcomers. And so using language drawn from the Old Testament, John shows us that when these four living creatures, they worship God, the 24 elders who stand in God's presence representing us, they join in singing and praising and worshiping him as well. And then the camera zooms out over the course of the passage and we see countless angels joining in this song. And finally, we see every creature in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and sea and everything in it joins in worshiping God. Now, why is that important? What does that mean for us? It means that no matter who you are, no matter how great and mighty you may be, no matter how small and insignificant you may feel, seeing God on his throne leads to worship. It's true, of everything in the universe, from the highest angels who constantly live in God's presence to the fish of the sea and everything in between, seeing God on the throne leads to worship, which means if you're not living a life marked by worship of God, you don't have a proper understanding of the fact that God is on the throne. If you're constantly giving into temptation and failing to live as an overcomer, your primary problem is not a lack of discipline. It's a lack of perspective. If you're constantly living in a way that assigns greater worth to people and things other than God than you assign to God, you aren't living with this image of God on the throne as the central controlling image in your life. You know, I was talking earlier about how we fail to live as overcomers because we don't have the proper picture of God on the throne. And you are feeling down on yourself because you know that you have failed so many times in the past. The solution for you is not try harder and do better. The solution is get this perspective of God on the throne. It's probably going to mean spending time reading your Bible and meditating on God's words. So that this image of God on the throne and his power and his majesty just plants itself in your imagination. It's probably going to involve talking with others in the church and celebrating the glory of God on the throne in those conversations so that this image just becomes more real to you and more natural to the way you see the world. It's going to mean praying and repenting of your small view of God and joining in this worship of all creation, praising the one who sits on the throne. Because when we see God properly on his throne, we can't help but worship. We can't help but live in a way that shows that he is our greatest treasure. But even as we see this great worship and celebration in this scene that shakes heaven and earth, there's a notable exception to this praise. And that's John himself at the start of chapter five. Cause at the start of chapter five, John sees a scroll at God's right hand sealed with seven scroll, seven seals. And this scroll contains God's plan for history and the universe in its fullness. Remember, if you were here last week, seven in Revelation is a number of completion and perfection. So it's the complete, perfect plan of God for all of history and how it's going to unfold. It's God's plan for how he's going to reward his children and heap blessings on those who are faithful to him and live as overcomers. It's God's plan for how he's going to bring justice to the world and make all things right. And John sees this scroll at God's right hand, and he hears an angel calling out with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the souls, open the scroll, and break the seals? And John tells us that no one was found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And when John sees that no one is worthy, he's heartbroken. He begins to weep loudly. Now, why is John weeping? Well, it's because if no one can open the scroll, then God's plans can't be fulfilled. It means that all of the suffering, like John is writing this from prison. If God's plans will not be fulfilled, then all of the suffering that John and his fellow Christians have endured for Jesus will be for nothing because God's not actually going to set things right in the end. If the scroll isn't going to be opened. Christians have no grounds for believing God's promise that he's going to work all things out for good. If God's not going to set things right in the end, there's absolutely no reason for us to live as overcomers. And John sees this scroll. He sees that no one is worthy to open it. And he's afraid that God's plans for the world will not be fulfilled. And so he is sad. He's heartbroken. And he starts crying. And as he's crying, one of the elders speaks to him and tells him there is still hope because Jesus is king. The elder comes to him in chapter five, verse five, and says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we already saw, lions are majestic. They're powerful conquerors. And this lion isn't just any lion. He's the root of David, which means he's the descendant and heir of the royal line of Israel. He's a king and he has conquered. He is worthy. He can open the scroll and the seals and he can see that God's plan is accomplished in history. That's wonderful, awesome, amazing news, right? That God's plans will be fulfilled. And so John, hears this description of this conquering lion. And he looks up towards God's throne and what he sees is totally different than what he expected. Because right at the throne where he expects to see this lion, where only God himself belongs, there's not a lion. Instead, there's a lamb. Now, lambs are not conquerors. Lambs are frail and fragile. And this lamb is especially frail and fragile because it looks like it's been killed but this lamb has seven horns. Remember seven in revelation, completeness and perfection. Horns are a symbol of power. This lamb has seven horns. So this lamb has perfect and complete power, despite how it looks. And this lamb has seven eyes, which is the seven spirits of God. Remember seven is symbolic here. John is not saying there are seven Holy Spirits. He's saying the fullness and perfection of God's Holy Spirit is in the Lamb. The Lamb is completely filled with and empowered by God's Spirit. The Lamb looks weak and fragile at first glance, but he actually is a majestic conqueror. As we saw last week, appearances can be deceiving. And this lamb takes the scroll, and as he does, there's this major shift and transition that happens in the passage. You probably didn't even realize it, but it's super important, this transition that happens. Because as soon as the lamb takes the scroll, the living creatures and the elders around God's throne, they begin to worship again. But at first, they were singing praise to the one who sits on the throne, and now they're not. Now they're singing praise to the lamb. And then a couple verses later, this group of angels so big, it can't be counted joins in and they sing in chapter five, verses 11 to 12, sorry, uh, nine to 10, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And that's, sorry, that's the first group in chapter, the elders and the living creatures. And then when the angels join in, they say, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing? They're saying the Lamb is worthy of all these same things they were saying God is worthy of just a few verses earlier. And then in verse 13, every creature in all creation sings praise to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb together. The, the God on the throne and the Lamb are praised together. Now, why is that important? Why is that significant? Because the book of Revelation is super clear that only God is worthy of worship. Any time throughout the book of Revelation that someone tries to worship something or someone other than God, they're either rebuked for it or judged for it. Right worship, worship that remains faithful to God alone through all the trials and difficulties of life, That's the goal of Revelation. And here, God is on the throne. He's right there. But every creature in all creation is singing praise to someone else, the lamb, in God's presence. And God's okay with it. Now, how is that possible? It's because the lamb is also God. Jesus, the lion of Judah, the heir of David's throne, the conqueror, Who's also the lamb that was slain, the only perfect human being who can fulfill God's plans for the world is God. That's why, as Christians, we believe in the Trinity. We believe there's one God, but He exists as three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see the reality of the Trinity reflected in the worship of the Lamb right here in this passage. And the worship of Jesus in this passage has a ton of implications for our lives today. First, Jesus is God, right? The worship of Jesus in chapter five alongside of God the Father would not be allowed if he was anything less than God. The worship of Jesus here shows that Jesus is God. Second, this passage gives us some really good insight into the heart of God. You know, I've heard several times during my life, people make this claim that that in the Old Testament, God is harsh and he's angry and he's judgmental. But in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he softens him out. He makes God more forgiving and more loving. And this passage blows that theory to pieces for two reasons. First, this scroll that Jesus takes for unfolding the plan of history, it's God's scroll, the Father's scroll. Jesus' work in the world of saving people and forgiving people and ransoming people for God only happens because it was the Father's plan in the first place. Jesus didn't come in and make some angry God peace out. No, he lovingly submitted to his father's loving rescue plan for the world. And second, throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, Jesus is the one who oversees the judgment of the world. Jesus isn't just love and peace, he's also a judge. An accurate reading of the Bible will not let you walk away with a father who's harsh and judgmental and a Jesus who is forgiving and okay with everything. Both of them are fully God. Both are loving. Both are proactively planning and working to save and rescue humanity from ourselves. But also both are just and both will hold rebellion against them accountable. The character of Jesus and the character of God the Father are the same. The third super important thing we see in this passage is Jesus means a victory. How did this lion conquer? How did the lamb conquer? Well, look at chapter five, verse nine. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus conquered through suffering and death. Yeah.
0: His
1: blood. Yeah you got to be quiet. His blood paid a price that purchased you and me for God. It made us God's people. And Jesus' death to redeem us actually sets in motion God's plan for history that's contained in the scroll. If that's how Jesus won victory and how Jesus purchased the people for God by suffering and dying, that actually teaches you and me what it means to live as overcomers today. Because just as Jesus conquered through suffering, we as his people are called to conquer through suffering. I know that's not fun, right? Like No one wants to conquer through suffering. But that's what we're shown through this passage. That, that to live as overcomers means being people who conquer through suffering. If you are a Christian, your greatest victories will often look like the times when you're losing. Like if you get fired from your job for refusing to compromise and tell lies in order to increase your company's bottom line, you're going to feel weak and powerless. You're going to feel like you're losing, but actually suffering for your integrity because of Jesus is a moment of great victory for you. If you get dumped by your boyfriend because you refuse to sleep with him before you're married, you're going to feel weak and powerless. You're going to feel like you're losing but actually suffering because you're standing for your integrity, because of your love for Jesus. That's a moment of great victory for you. If you are a Christian and you are suffering because you remain faithful to Jesus, that's not losing. That is victory appearances. Like we said last week, appearances can be deceiving. The fact that Jesus conquered through suffering and death means that our path to victory as his people is going to be a path that goes through suffering as well. But it's going to be worth it because Jesus has proven through his example that there is purpose and joy in suffering, and that suffering is the ultimate path to overcoming and being conquerors. Jesus' means of victory informs and shapes our means of victory as his people. And then the fourth big, huge, important thing we see in this passage is that Jesus' victory, Jesus' conquering, Jesus' kingship, it means that you and I have a job to do. Look at chapter five, verse 10. It says, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, again, this is language taken straight out of the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, God has just rescued Israel from being slaves in Egypt. He rescued them through the death of lambs at Passover, just like we're rescued by the blood of a lamb right here. And then he brings the Israelites out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai to give them the law. And before he gives them the 10 commandments, he tells them, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, here's what that means. God's plan for Israel is that once he rescues them, they would live in a way that's different than all the rest of the world around them. That will set them apart as his people. And his goal is that as they live this way, the nations around them will see these differences and want what they have. And that that will lead the nations around them to trust in God. And right here in this passage, we see the church is now the heir of those promises. Jesus' death on the cross is the new and greater Passover, where we as God's people are rescued by the blood of a spotless lamb. And because Jesus has conquered, he set you and me apart as a people for God, who are called to live differently from the world around us and show them the beauty of life as God's people. God has given you and me a mission of being his messengers and representatives to a lost and dying world around us. And notice in this verse that the verbs, they're all past tense. It's not saying you will make them a kingdom and priests at some point in the future. These are past tense verbs. You have made them a kingdom and priests. The the reality of you and me being a kingdom and priests to God, it's already a present reality for us. Because Jesus is king, you and I have a job to do. Because Jesus is ruling over history and ensuring that God's plans for it are fulfilled, you and I can do this job with confidence that we will have success in the end. Yes, there will be difficulty and struggles and suffering, but God is in control and God is working for our good. Which means the difficulty and the suffering, there's simply more opportunities for you and me to live out the reality of the fact that we're overcoming overcomers. There are more things for us to overcome. And so what does it look like for us to live this way as a kingdom and priest to God? Well, you can think of it in terms of our church's values. If we were at church right now, I would put up a point to the sign that has our four values on it. We're not, so I'll just tell you what they are. The first is Christ. Being a kingdom and priest to God means living in a way that shows that Jesus is our greatest treasure. It means that if we need to make sacrifices of time or money or comfort or honor or esteem for the sake of being faithful to Jesus, we make those sacrifices because Jesus is our greatest treasure. Second, community. We live in a hyper individualistic world. Like if you have a problem, don't bother me with it unless it's my job to fix it and you're paying me for it, right? Like that's how our world sees things. Don't ask me questions about my personal life because that's none of your business but it says Jesus ransomed a people for God, not individuals, but a group, a family, a nation, a group that's meant to be united in our love and concern for one another, a group that's meant to support one another through these difficulties of life. Being a kingdom and priest means that we are deeply involved in one another's lives in a way that's probably gonna feel uncomfortable sometimes, but we're called to be involved on that deep level in one another's lives so we can live as a people for God. Third, calling. Living as a kingdom and priest means living in a way that prioritizes spiritual growth in our lives. Prioritizing how we spend our time so that this reality, the reality of God on the throne and the lamb being worthy becomes a deeper reality for us each day. And then fourth, commission. Telling the world around us about who Jesus is. And on one level, if we're living this way that I've just been outlining, this should be happening almost naturally. People who don't know Jesus see us living differently. They want what we have and they come to trust Jesus because they see us living differently. But the key is if that's gonna happen, we have to do all these other steps around non-Christians. We can't just run off to some Christian bubble where we're safe and secluded from the world. We actually have to live our lives for Jesus in a way that our non-Christian friends and neighbors can see us doing that. So that's what it looks like to live as a kingdom and priest to God. Church, a proper perspective of God on the throne, it leads to proper worship. And proper worship is a main ingredient, if not the main ingredient, in us living as overcomers. If we're going to be the people God calls us to be, it doesn't start with us rolling up our sleeves and trying harder. It starts with us learning to see clearly what it means that God is on the throne. And as we do that, it's going to transform the way we live every day and make us overcomers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and that you love us and that you have made a way for us to be your people, that you have made us a kingdom and priests. We thank you that you are on the throne, that Jesus is overseeing the events of history so we know that they will end well for us. And we pray that you would help us each day to remember that reality of you on the throne and to live as overcomers in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.